Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. Hi, my name is Savannah Taito. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Khalil Gamble, stationed in Maryland. Hi, my name is Adam Osella. I'm in King George, Virginia. Lights up on a park bench. On a sidewalk. Near a city street. One late afternoon in mid-December. There is moderate rush hour traffic. Jeffrey, tall and slender, wearing a long wool overcoat and carrying a briefcase, enters, absorbed in his own thoughts. After a few steps, he turns toward the audience. Ever have one of those days when you feel like you've forgotten something? Not just your keys or your wallet or turn your office's alarm system on or off. No, something much more important than that. If I left the stove on this morning, the whole apartment building will surely be burnt to the ground by the time I get home. Especially if the train is late. Again. I'm kind of young for Alzheimer's. Or maybe I have Alzheimer's and just can't remember that I have it. Dryden enters, walking as if one leg is shorter than the other at a very slow pace. He is slightly stooped. His face is grotesque, though a handsome head of hair belies his misshapen countenance. Jeffrey notices Dryden, steps toward him, then stops. How peculiar. I know I've passed this very same man before. The two men continue to approach one another. Jeffrey trying to make eye contact, Dryden constantly gazing at the ground. When their paths intersect, Jeffrey stops for a split second. But then both men continue walking in complete silence. Dryden exits. I know that I've passed him before, definitely. I have the same feeling of sadness inside, and yet I am angry at the same time. For feeling sad. He didn't ask for my sympathy, but I'm ready to offer it nonetheless. I mean, how do I know what his life has been like with... You know, a face that not only frightens, but could kill. There, I've said it. A man who looks like a brute could be brutish, could be vengeful even. And who could blame him? If I had to endure people staring at me like I just did, well, I might feel like raising my fists too. Only he didn't. Or doesn't. He seems so peaceful. Lights fade. Scene two. Lights up on Jeffrey as he quickly returns and glances at his watch. I hate how dark it is at the end of the day now. What I hate even more is my cold, empty apartment. Maybe I'll eat out. Dryden enters, dressed as before, his head still hanging as he walks. I wonder how cold or empty his apartment is, or even if he has a roof over his head. Maybe I should ask him to dinner? As the two men's paths intersect, Jeffrey again attempts to make eye contact. He nods at Dryden and opens his mouth as if to speak. Dryden not only fails to acknowledge Jeffrey, but continues walking. Ask him to dinner. What, is he supposed to hear my brains rattle? No wonder I go home to an empty apartment. I haven't had the nerve to ask a girl out since... since Miranda died. You need to talk to people, Jeffrey. I need to talk. Jeffrey and Dryden exit. Lights fade. Scene three. Lights up on the same city street and sidewalk. Early morning. Jeffrey enters, walking toward his office. And so it continued, like a cycle or circle, or some living, breathing deja vu. I walked in one direction. Dryden enters, his head still hanging. And though I truly wished I could call him, and call out to him as something other than a stranger. Jeffrey and Dryden's paths once again intersect. Good morning, sir. Dryden ignores him, continues walking. That's all I had to offer. That's all I had to offer? And so close to Christmas? I couldn't even say Happy Holidays? Really? You have a name, I bet. And so do I. I'm Jeffrey, and I'd really like to... 
Dryden does a brief stutter step, as if tempted to turn around, but instead disappears off stage. I'd really like to say, this is ridiculous. Wait! Wait! Lights fade. Scene four. Lights up, same setting as before, but now early afternoon on Christmas Eve. Jeffrey enters with a briefcase in one hand and a wrapped present in the other. He keeps checking his wristwatch. What are the chances? He has no idea that I was only scheduled for a half day. But I'm sure he must know it's Christmas Eve, and that bosses, even the less caring ones, have softer hearts at this time of year. What the hell, I'm in no hurry, and my apartment will be even more empty tonight, so... precise moment, Dryden enters, perhaps walking a little slower than before, with a seeming burden on his shoulders. Dryden takes a few steps, notices Jeffrey, and for the first time does an aside to the audience himself. He looks as if he's ready to pop the question. I wonder who the lucky young lady is. Jeffrey, a goofy Cheshire cat-like grin on his face, gives him a nod. Though maybe I jumped the gun by saying lucky. Dryden resumes walking. As he nears the bench, Jeffrey calls out to him. Merry Christmas! Dryden stops, turns once again to the audience. Is this where I'm supposed to say bah humbug and beat him within an inch of his life? Jeffrey repeats his salutation, this time while extending the wrapped gift to Dryden. Merry, Merry Christmas. For me? Probably a full head mask, a superhero or a clown, so that he could carry on a conversation without looking at my face. Hope you got the largest size they have, because I have a really big head. Largest size? Extra large, actually. How did you know it was a sweater? A sweater? Oh, right. I guess I'm psychic or something. (laughs) Want to sit down? Please, do. Dryden sits on the bench. The repulsion is more intense when you look directly at me. Oh, right. Sorry, no offense, but... You don't like being turned to stone from head to toe? Oh, come on. I didn't say anything about Medusa. Oh, right. In that case, do you like getting stoned from head to toe? What? I didn't say anything blasphemous, did I? Shaking his head, Dryden reaches into his jacket pocket, pulls out a small hashish pipe. Okay, I'll repeat the question again. Do you... like... getting stoned? What are you doing? The police, they go by here regularly. Dryden takes one last puff, then puts away the pipe. I'm sorry, but it's the only thing that gets me through the pain. The pain? Of what? Of existence. There is a brief moment of silence. Then, as if he never actually missed a beat, Dryden extends his hand. Dryden! Jeffrey. So what gives? What do you mean? I mean, are you in the habit of buying gifts for complete strangers? Well, no. But I feel like I know you. On some level. Because you've passed me on the sidewalk every day for weeks? What a bunch of bunk. I've never wanted to pass up a free sweater. I mean, 
windshields are supposed to be brutal tonight. So you are homeless. No. I just don't like being cold. Oh, wait a minute. You think because I could pass for the elephant man's slightly more handsome brother that no one in their right mind would give me a mortgage. Please. I didn't say that. I bet you think I have a hump on my shoulder, too. Wait, you really do, don't you? Just because my posture is a little... compromised? Dryden stands, takes off his jacket. If I had asked you to guess my name, what would you have said? Quasimodo? Igor? Oh, master... It's me, here to do your every bidding, the hunchback of, of, of Marshall Avenue. (laughs) Dryden begins to laugh hysterically, but when he notices that Jeffrey is offended, he stops abruptly and sits back down. Forgive me. I really should be more gracious, but my sincerity meter is on the fritz. You mean, you don't know if I'm being genuine? It's one of the hazards of being a freak, I guess. The inability to discern friends from foes. That's difficult for anyone. Yes, but an even tougher task when someone secretly believes you should be in a sideshow. Do you? Never. Look, Dryden, I didn't come here to ridicule or regale you. That's not at all who I am. You can ask any one of my... my... well, I don't have many friends. But when you come across one, feel free to ask. Don't understand why you should be so friendless. You, with your suit and fancy coat and a leather attaché case, which is surely the sign of a successful man about town, are you an accountant? Almost that boring, but no. A law clerk. Okay, now you know pretty much all you need to know about my lonely heart's existence. So it's your turn. Trust me, I'm really not very Oh, come on. There's got to be a good story behind that... That... Sober facade. Don't you mean sober ring? No, no, no. I didn't mean... Relax, friend. I'm not offended in the least. My story is a short one. Better consumed at a short sitting. Well, like this one. Lights down, and a spotlight on Dryden. I was born a happy boy. Right from the get-go, you could say I was what you'd call a smiler. I laughed and giggled an awful lot, as my mother used to tell everyone. But that only lasted until, well, I was old enough to go to school. I thought I was normal, but other kids... God isn't the only one who knows they can be mean. At first, I thought they were picking on me because I was shy and, you know, smiled a lot. But there was no one else like me. And so no one else liked me. I made it through those tumultuous school years somehow. And trust me, they were definitely tumultuous. And even graduated from college. Yet people didn't remember me as the one most likely to succeed. They just recalled my face. Funny, because every morning when I would look in the mirror, I'd want to forget it. I started wearing a hoodie, extra large, so the hood would shadow my face. And I wore it everywhere, even to job interviews, because of course I had to make a living. And what an impression I surely made with my hood on, a hoodlum without a, without it a, A beast! I was destined for infamy and solitude. Or so I thought. My angel. Such an angel. 
I miss her so. She saved me, or rather, first she interviewed me for chief engineer at WTIP Radio. (laughs) I thought she was blind when she said, you're hired, and felt for sure she was insane when she said yes to dinner one colder than normal afternoon in September. The rest is well of historical proportions. Lights restore. Dryden hands the photo to Jeffrey. I am moved and so impressed. Only thing impressive is that I'm still alive after all these years. You know, I didn't want to live after after she passed. I still don't want to live some days. And it's been three years since Miranda died. A brief silence. Then Dryden jumps to his feet. Well, life goes on, my friend. And it is Christmas Eve. I don't want to keep my daughter waiting. Dryden quickly shakes Jeffrey's hand, then grabs the gift and turns to depart. Jeffrey smiles, calmly watching Dryden depart, but then a sudden thought occurs to him, and he shouts, Wait, you have a daughter? Lights fade. Scene 5. Lights up. Same city sidewalk. The first working day of the new year. Morning. Jeffrey enters, walking at an anxious pace, and stops center stage. I wonder. I wa-wa-wa-wa-wonder. I wonder what could be keeping him. Sorry, I don't know why I'm so happy. First day back to work after the holidays, and I'm feeling as giddy as, well, Alistair Sim in A Christmas Carol. Jeffrey looks at his watch. Usually he's here by now. Jeffrey shrugs his shoulders, then resumes walking this time at a snail's pace. Mia enters. She is a bright-eyed, rosy-cheeked woman with a certain bounce to her step. She takes a few steps and spying Jeffrey hesitates for a brief moment. As Mia and Jeffrey's paths intersect, she pauses for an instant, as if wanting to speak, but Jeffrey walks past her without acknowledgement. Mia turns toward the audience and she speaks. What a peculiar man. Acts as if he's in his own little world. But he definitely was tall. She turns to look at Jeffrey, just as he is exiting, then shrugs her shoulders and exits herself. Lights fade. Scene six. Lights up. Same day. Same scene. Late afternoon. This time, Mia and Jeffrey enter simultaneously. They walk slowly toward one another, and at this time Jeffrey notices and is struck by her beauty. He stops in his tracks, addresses the audience using lyrics from the song on the sunny side of the street. Can't you hear the pit-a-pat? And that happy tune is your step. Suddenly, caught up in the moment, Jeffrey grasps Mia by the hand and leads her in a twirl while they both sing. Life can be complete On the sunny side of the street They both act suddenly embarrassed and pull away from each other. I'm sorry. (laughs) Me too. Well, not really, but... It was kind of spontaneous. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but... I haven't been spontaneous since... Since... You didn't happen to pass a man when you were walking, did you? A... an extraordinary man. A little taller than you with a... smile and a gentle soul that could... Jeffrey reaches into his pocket and pulls out the photo of Dryden's late wife. Win the heart of a woman like this. My... mother... and you! Mia embraces Jeffrey. It's you! Right where he said you would be. Jeffrey is suddenly quite aware of who is hugging him and hugs her back. Wait, so you are? Mia, 
I am Mia, daughter of... Dryden, I have been looking for your father. Is he on an extended vacation? I wanted to return this photograph to him, because I know it meant so much. Wait, what did I say? It's... it's not you, it's just that... Is your father okay? Please, tell me that nothing has happened. It was a gradual decline. He knew it was coming, and so did I, just not so soon. On Christmas morning. On Christmas? I am so, so sorry. No, please, no pity for him. He never wanted any, especially not now. He lived a full life and passed very... happy. He said I was his happiness. His only happiness. Until he met you. Me? We only actually talked that one time. Though I wanted to talk many times before. Your words. You said I was right where he said I would be? He said you were very kind to him. I gave my word I would meet you. He's always been a very good judge of people, you know? I am so... She puts her finger to his lips. Remember? No pity. He would prefer that we rejoice instead, for all the beauty in the world. Why do you laugh? Oh, nothing. (laughs) I'm just remembering the way Father described you. Tall, handsome, I hope. Well, well, he put it this way. Lights fade. Spotlight on Dryden wearing the sweater that Jeffrey gave him. He is sitting in a chair. He's a little homely. His nose is a bit too big for the rest of his face, and his ears surely flap and flutter on a windy day. But rarely have I met a man in this world who is willing to look beyond imperfections, his own and others, and see the true goodness in the human soul. You really need to meet him. Promise me you will meet him. Spotlight fades. Humanities Tennessee is pleased to announce that the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up Podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities for this amazing opportunity. Hello and welcome everyone. We are back for another episode of Lights Up. We are in season three, which is incredible when you think about it, that this started as a little quarantine project. Um, And my name is Dana. I'm here with Christy. Hello, everyone. And Christy and I are joined by the playwright of The Hunchback of Marshall Avenue, which you just heard. We are joined by Randy Gross. Hi, Randy. Hi. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Randy, pre, um, pre-us recording, you and I chatted a little bit about where you're joining us from, but go ahead and, and share with our lit- listeners where you are, what's the weather like, how is everything up in your neck of the woods? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm in a town called Enola, Pennsylvania, which is directly across the river from Harrisburg. So uh, I'm actually right on the riverfront. So we have a nice 
like cityscape view from our front porch of the Capitol. So it's, we, we like living here. It's a pretty cool place. Are you originally from Pennsylvania or you moved that way post-college? I grew up in York, which is, which is about 30 minutes from, from where I'm at right now. So yeah, Pennsylvania, born and bred and lived here all my life so far. So Awesome. So talk to us a little bit about you as a playwright. How did you get your start and what, what inspired you to get started with playwriting? I've been writing, I've been playing around with scripts since I was a kid, actually, in grade school. I mean, I can remember, I know it's going to sound kind of bizarre, but I can remember like in third grade, maybe, uh, we the, the teacher had us all working on projects. And I wrote this little play skit thing that was kind of serious for, for my age. It dealt with drug dealers and I had a toy plastic gun and I ended up shooting myself in the end and <laughs> a very dramatic scene. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I've been playing around with uh, with play scripts that long, probably as long as rather than playing around with poetry. I started writing poetry at a very young age, too. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love it when I hear that someone caught caught a bug, if you will, early on, and it just has carried them through. I think that's uh, so inspiring. Honestly, give us a little bit of history on the Hunchback. Uh, when did you when did you write this? What inspired it? That was written probably about eight years ago. I was working in Lancaster, which is about an hour away from where I live, uh, at an advertising agency. Uh, and uh, riding a train, right? <laughs> I was actually riding the train, the Amtrak between Harrisburg and Lancaster for a couple of years. And this play was inspired by my walk from my office to the train station uh, several evenings in a row. I actually encountered somebody who inspired the character of, uh, of Drayden. That's so, it's so lovely that it's an everyday occurrence that kind of um, inspired this, right? Because you can take inspiration from anywhere. And as we know, uh, art mirrors life. Um, sometimes it reflects the life that we want. Sometimes it's more introspective about life. Um, this podcast, uh, this season, we've been focusing kind of on major events. Um, and major doesn't necessarily have to be big. Um, but so talk to us a little bit about maybe a, a, re a revelation kind of that we see these characters go through a revelation here because it's, it's such a simple everyday occurrence and a simple action, but um, it really says a lot about how we look at people and how we see people in this play. Yeah. I, I can't uh, pinpoint any particular revelation that came to me. I mean, because most of this kind of has played out my own mind with my own, mag own imagination what I thought would occur. So there wasn't a particular moment, I don't think. Uh, just like you said, the rep repetition of things, night after night, walking to the train station when it's just starting to get dark out and encountering this individual uh, walking by me, sometimes on the other side of the road, sometimes on my side of the road, and just kind of us, both of us linking eyes briefly, but then not communicating in any other way except with a brief, you know, look. <laughs> so it was, it was left to the imagination, which I love. And you mentioned earlier that that's how kind of you started in playwriting, right? You were a young kid with a big um, dramatic imagination. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you went from doing that as a child to an adult? Was there a moment or a person who helped you realize like, this is something you can keep doing. This is something people do as a career. Um, how did the playwriting shape from that kid with the toy gun to Hunchback? Actually, a lot of my inspiration came from watching a lot of movies when I was a kid. Uh, as an avid movie watcher, my one older brother really got me caught up in that. We'd watch uh, Saturday afternoon movies, uh, late night movies. We had a Philadelphia TV station that would air like a movie of the week that they'd repeat the movie like every day for a whole week. And I'd watch these like schlocky little foreign films, like Italian gladiator movies and stuff over and over again. And that kind of stuff just always sparked my imagination because right now I'm also a screenwriter too. So playwriting progressed in the screenwriting 
from there. But uh, yeah, that's how I kind of got my start. And actually, radio writing played a big role for me. Uh, about 25 years ago, I started working in radio as a copywriter, writing radio commercials. And uh, with that, you have to really come up with ideas quickly and write things quickly because not only will things be on the air next day, but also within the next hour sometimes. So I learned to write really fast scripts and that's kind of influenced my style writing too. I can take a break at lunchtime at the office and just in a half hour bang out a couple pages of whatever play or screenplay I'm working on. And I make progress consistently that way. And so I, I feel like I owe a lot to radio. So we just got to listen to Adam, Khalil, and Savannah bring The Hunchback of Marshall Avenue to life, which was really fantastic. Have you gotten to see this produced before or has it had uh, radio productions before as well? No radio production, but it did have a live stage production uh, in Long Island City, which is uh, close to right outside New York City. So uh, Secret Theater, which... Uh, has just been reborn in a new location, but for a number of years they had a one-act festival where uh, playwrights would submit short plays, and you're kind of responsible for producing them yourselves. But with me living down here in the Harrisburg area, I had to coordinate things with producers and actors, get things set up for me up there. And this was produced. What year was that? around 2015 maybe, but, uh, and then he would have the audience vote at the end of the, the week. Well, actually it played out over a couple of weeks and they would have the audience vote and my Hunchback of Marshall Avenue actually got voted best play that year. In getting to listen to it without actually seeing it, did you have any, um, did anything surprise you? Did you have any experiences you didn't expect to have? No, no. It, I mean, I was able to visualize it very well from from the audio production. I mean, it certainly helped actually seeing it staged live before with the visualization of it too. But uh, yeah, they did a great job with the with the audio show. The relationships, but especially uh, between Jeffrey and Drayden, was this any it being inspired by someone you actually passed, which I just think is fantastic. Were were you? Um, exploring or examining any any fantasies that you had imagined in your head of, oh, if I talk to him, this is how this would go? Or, um, you know, were, were you hoping to inspire people to talk to, to that stranger more frequently than we do? Yeah, I think, I think I was. Because uh, I do have some regrets still that I didn't uh, pursue communicating with him more. I mean, there were times... Uh, at my job, I would even go out for walks during my lunch break in the neighborhood in a different direction. And I would see him off in the distance carrying like small bags of groceries. Like he must have walked a, quite a distance to to get some groceries and must not have had a car even. To, to And I thought to myself, not only should you maybe reach out to him, but he, maybe even offer him a ride sometime or, or, or something like that. So, yeah, ideally, I wish I would have done something more. And if I can inspire somebody else to to reach out and communicate with people more, that's fantastic. Well, and I loved the the duality of it. You know, we're, we're we are flitting in and out of other people's lives there. You know, that discovery of both men wondering about each other and wondering about their lives and having their own judgments and um yeah, discussing those those things amongst themselves. I really found that fascinating, especially when, you know, loss was brought up. You know, I think it had been three years for Jeffrey since since losing Miranda. And when like these big levels of pain where it could be easy for Drayden to look at Jeffrey and be like, what does he know about pain? Yeah, there's, there's probably still a lot that uh, could be discovered about Drayden's character, too, if if it was a longer play. Have you ever thought about expanding it past a one act or you're really satisfied with what it accomplishes? And it's, it's, which I, I believe it probably accomplishes your objective very nicely, but I didn't know if you'd ever toyed around with the idea of expanding it. 
No, not not really with that play. I mean, I, there have been other uh, short plays of mine that I have expanded, but this one I I feel pretty satisfied with with the way it ends and everything. So piggybacking off of that question, so can you talk to our audience a little bit about how you approach writing and when you have an idea? Do you know this is going to be a play? Do you know this is going to be a screenplay? Is it going to be a short play? Is it going to be long? Do you do that sorting or do you just kind of write and let it happen? What's your process like? Yeah, when I, the majority of the time when I come up with a, a concept or a plot for something, it doesn't pretty much immediately occur to me what what style or what uh, format I, I want to pursue with that, whether it's going to be a, a short 10 or 15 minute play or a longer one act or a full length or, or a screenplay or teleplay. Uh, yeah, it pretty much plays out in my mind. But think about that. Once I write a script, often I will end up translating it into another format. I'll start as a play. I'll finish as a play. And then I'll decide, well, I want to do a, a screenplay or a teleplay version of this or the other way around. I'll write a screenplay and think, well, maybe since I'm not getting any bites on this to get turned into a movie, if I can write it as a play and get a stage production first, maybe it'll springboard from that and a producer will notice and say, hey, I, I think it would be great to turn this into a movie. So I, I, I have quite a few things that I have in, in both play and screenplay format that I'm trying to, I have, a, I have a musical like that right now. I'm trying to pitch both uh, a movie version and a, a stage play version. So what is your approach? Let's say if the play comes first, um, like what are some of the big things that you have to do to translate it to a screenplay or vice versa? If you have something that's written screenplay format, what are some of the big like points that as a writer, you're like, well, I've got to do X, Y, and Z to make it more, theatrical for the stage um are there like certain things you know you have to transfer yeah i mean i I think primarily uh since stage shows are so much more dialogue driven than what uh movies are and then movies you have to incorporate so much more i mean not a lot but it's a lot more visual components describing what the scenes and and stuff are are like I, i think that comes into play definitely for whether it's going to be one or the other. So your journey as a playwright, um, is, are there any works that you've had published or any works that you're particularly proud of that have been produced? Uh, I've had one of my short plays uh, titled Bread. That's been produced uh, probably a half dozen different states in, in the United States. Also, Sydney, Australia, and also the UK. And it also was uh, published in the best 10 minute plays of 2015. I just sold my first screenplay. So I'm happy about that. I write usually like quirky comedies or some horror and science fiction, some drama. This one, it was intended to be a Hallmark Christmas movie. And it got the interest of a producer in Georgia and she's not going to pitch it to Hallmark, but she's going to uh, pitch it to some of the streaming services. So I'm now writing another Hallmark style Christmas movie because, because they're very formulaic and in that respect, they're kind of easy to turn out. So I'm thinking if I can, you know, just start writing those, I'm almost finished with this one. Maybe I can make more money that way. Maybe I can retire early if I just start making some income off of some screenplays. So, But I was going to ask you, as someone who now we know is beyond hunchback, is into writing about Christmas, what is it about the Christmas season that lends itself to such theatricality? I think there's probably more Christmas plays, musicals, movies than any other holiday um, what's your personal take on why that shows up in our art so often? I think partially because uh, I think the the most famous Christmas story, a Christmas Carol, it has become such a pervasive part of our culture and society. I mean, you, you look how many different times they reproduced 
and refilmed that same story and how much Scrooge is such a character who's in commercials and all over the place all the time. I, I just think, I mean, for me, that that's like my favorite story and my favorite work of fiction, uh, period. I mean, I've read that book, I don't know how many times already. So I just think uh, Dickens created a lot of the current feelings and, and habits and things that we celebrate about Christmas. And I just think people feed off that. I know I do. I just, that's how I picture Christmas in my own mind uh, ever since I was a kid. I actually got to interview uh, uh, Charles Dickens. I think it's great, great grandson last year for my job. Uh, he, he tours England and also the United States doing his one man show of a Christmas carol. With Christmas, just throwing my two cents in there, it's an undeveloped theory, just swinging off the cuff with this one, Dana. But I think I think Christmas is such a time when our concept of community reaches this level where we we wish we felt safe enough all year long, but now we suddenly have this holly jolly excuse to... I don't know to 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 just be be a thoughtful person. That that sounds sarcastic and it's not meant to to be you know to connect with other human beings. I do think we want that the other eleven months of the year, but for whatever reason, um, you know, Christmas helps that. And and that was one of the things I actually really liked about Hunchback of Marshall Avenue was was that Christmas component of, you know, especially with the sweater, um, the moment, the moment of like, I hope it's big. I have, you know, I have a large head. Um, but just that, okay, I did this thoughtful thing and it maybe, maybe I missed the mark on it, but I wanted to do something because I see you and you're a human and I'm a human and I, I, let's see each other. Um, so that was one, I don't know. That's, that's a very, like I said, it's a very undeveloped theory, but I think there's something about community and Christmas yeah, I agree. And certainly we could all use a little more community right now uh, in such a divided country, you know? Yeah. And and that's the thing, too, that I think is so wonderful about Christmas because I, it's the time of year. Um, I have friends from all different backgrounds who, whether they truly grew up celebrating Christmas as a Christian holiday or not still celebrate Christmas and still love Christmas. And um, there is something just really warm and open about that time of year. And maybe too, because it's coming at the end of the year and it gives us a moment to reflect because we're going to start new. We're starting a new year in January. And so it's, it's kind of like that really beautiful, bittersweet moment of an ending where you get to reflect back and you know, you think about whenever you're a senior and like those last few weeks of school before you graduate and it's all pink and it's all nostalgic and right, like anytime you come to an ending, you want to just think of the very best of it with all your pals. So there's something about that too, of like literally putting a bow and lights on the end of a year of a moment um, and getting to celebrate the very best of it too is, is so lovely. And we get all these beautiful metaphors too, like the classic Christmas sweater, right? It's something warm. It's something that's often handmade. Like that's a tro- like that's a a, a trope, a, a a symbol for a reason, right? You know, so there is that that wonderful part of Christmas too. But I agree, Christy. It's yeah, it's a lot about community. Um, we also wanted to, we've hit on it a little bit, but um, here at Lights Up, the major focus is on playwrights. Oftentimes, um, as other, you know, as performers, as designers, we don't really get to do anything until we get the play from the playwright. And sometimes we don't get to see the playwright or meet the playwright. So we really want to put the spotlight on playwrights here on this podcast. We've talked a little bit with you about it, but. Um, we always like to take our listeners through your individual process. Um, you've hinted that you learned how to write quickly and efficiently through your work in radio, but um, did you go to school for 
for playwriting, screenplays? Do you have a group of people that you depend on to read and help you with edits? Um, what's your process like when you're starting a new piece and who do you, if anyone, depend on for some help? I, I didn't go to school particularly for it. I uh, started out, I got my associate's degree in philosophy and then uh, got my bachelor's degree in humanities. So I just, I just knew at the time that I wanted to write and I wasn't sure exactly what kind of career I was going to pursue, but I just knew I wanted to write. So I guess got a liberal arts education and uh, my first job out of college was uh, for TV Guide magazine. If you remember back when TV Guide was a very small yes. magazine. Yeah, yep. We so are old a, enough to I remember a, that, yes. <laughs> so, so I was a, I was a regional editor uh, back then for a number of years for the Washington Baltimore edition of TV Guide and uh, got to write some little, you know, close-up features for different shows and stuff back then. But uh, I've probably only seriously been... I mean, I've always been dabbling with plays since I was, like I said before, since I was a kid. But I'd say seriously writing for about 25, 30 years now. Yeah, I mean, uh, play ideas just come to me. I, I was part of a little playwrights group here. It's still in existence. I don't hang out with them as much anymore. It was a Pennsylvania Playwrights Association, and they, they do a lot of good work here. And help the playwrights get local shows. Um, and my radio theater comedy troupe, which I mentioned before, we bounce ideas off of each other, primarily c comedic ideas, but I can, I can rely on them. Uh, anytime I want to do a staged reading and have some feedback with each other. So. So it's just a tight knit group of friends. Are they, um, other, are they all writers or is it a mix of writers and performers? Um, who do you get opinions from? It's a mix. Yeah, it's a mix of uh, the people in my comedy troupe, like half of them are from radio themselves. Another half are either poets or, or playwrights or writers. And I have a couple other uh, playwright friends in the area that I can bounce things off of too. Well, and that's a question we like to ask our playwrights in the process of trying to promote your work and get it out there and, um, oftentimes politics of the theater world or just the process of getting your work exposed and, you know, getting it out there. Is there anything about that process that you wish you could wave a magic wand and fix and change? Or um, what's been that learning curve like for you? Yeah, I mean, that, that is quite a process. I tell, I tell my friends sometimes that I feel like I spend just as much, if not more time, marketing my material is what I do actually writing it. Uh, it's just a constant, <laughs> you know, searching. I have all these different sites online that I go to, to, to look for call outs for manuscripts or contests and competitions and so forth. And that part, I wish, if I could wish for one thing, I wish that everything in that respect could be at one location and you wouldn't have to go to multiple places to try to find all the opportunities that you're looking for. But unfortunately, not everything's in one handy dandy location. So, uh, but there are some really good sites. Uh, NYC Playwrights is a really good one for uh, playwright opportunities because they they've absolutely don't allow any opportunities to be posted there that require entry fees, which I really do not like entry fees. Sometimes I pay them, especially if it's a, for a full-length play, and there's some promise of a decent prize, but I try to stay away from entry fees as much as possible. And as far as screenplays go, I think the most invaluable site is IMDb Pro, which you, if you become a member there, you can search through there and find all kinds of email contacts for producers and actors and so forth that you can try to pitch projects to. So. Yeah, I just, I just wish that everything was more community located in one spot so you wouldn't have to spend hours and hours all, every week looking for things. I guess my, my, own, my last question about uh, the script in particular would be asking about Mia and the choice to have. I didn't know if your 
Drayden had passed away or he just disappeared one day or if you were exploring something with the ending of Hunchback? Yeah, I mean, uh, Drayden just, well, the real life Drayden just seemed like he was not in the greatest of health when I would see him. And yeah, I mean, it, it worried me that eventually he might just disappear. And I mean, I stopped working at Lancaster pandemic. I lost my job in Lancaster. So I stopped working at Lancaster a couple of years ago. So I haven't even been over that way to see if he still walks around the, the town. But uh, yeah, and Mia, I, I really like how her character is introduced and how the romantic component comes in at the end. My only concern with her in such a short piece is whether people would be satisfied with her character only being in there for such a short time. I mean, I, th I think it works the way it is, but she's not in the play very long. I like that it ends, lends a level of mystery because she is in there so briefly that I found myself, you know, going on my own tangent of story um, about those two. So I, I enjoyed the duration that she was in there. I thought it, it, it gave good questions to be asked, if that makes sense. Uh, no, I was going to say the same, same thing, essentially that, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, even in real life, people can be there for a short time and make a big impact. So sometimes I think that's a great theatrical device as well as to just have a character come in for a short moment. You know, if you're serving your purpose, you're serving your purpose in real life or in a piece. It, it's not always about, you know, quality, not quantity, you know? <laughs> um, before, Christy and I always ask um, our playwrights the same three questions as a nice little way to uh, do a little personal thing right at the very end of the interview. Um, so we'll do that in a moment. But before we do that, we always give the playwrights a moment to let our audience know where they can find you, whether that's on social media, new play exchange, a website, any information you want to share to promote yourself to our audience where they can follow, like, subscribe. We will give you the floor to do that now. Well, I don't have a website of my own, unfortunately. So I, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, LinkedIn, but uh, really I don't have any other. I'm hoping I get an IMDb. I, I hope to get an IMDb page uh, shortly now since I sold my first screenplay. So hopefully people can find me there soon. Gotcha. And are you on New Play Exchange? Yes, I am. Yeah. Okay. I, sh I should have said that. <laughs> I, bought, I only joined there. I only joined uh, New Play Exchange about six months ago. So but I do have probably 20 plays up there right now. So, Perfect. Our listeners are very familiar with New Play Exchange, so they can find you there and on Facebook and LinkedIn. Perfect. All right. Well, we will jump in and ask you our three questions. So the first one, um, and I know this one can be tricky for writers in particular, but do you have a word that maybe is a favorite word? Could be a favorite word just right now. doesn't have to be all-time favorite um, or one that you're really drawn to. You like to say it, like how it sounds, any of that? For the longest time, I've always loved the word consternation. <laughs> I don't know. Why, it just just the, the, the sound of it to me. And then as a kid, you know, finding out what it meant. It just, it just always stuck with me. It's a, it's, it's a word I love. <laughs> um, is there a, again, we use the word favorite loosely, so you could think of it as special or nostalgic, but is there a favorite location or place that you have? Yeah, I'd say uh, there's a bed and breakfast at uh, Bethany Beach, in Delaware. It's called the Addy Sea. And uh, it's the first place that my, well, she's my wife now, uh, that Lauren and I uh, went to after we, we met at a poetry reading in December of that year. And in January, we took our first trip together. And I think she was kind of uh, 
caught off guard maybe a little bit initially, like who travels to the beach in the middle of winter time. But I <laughs> took dr- took his drive. I, I, mean, I, was, I was familiar with Delaware's beaches because I went to Delaware's beaches when I was a kid, but I'd never been to Bethany Beach. It just happened upon this little bed and breakfast there and stayed there for a few nights and just we fell in love and we've been together ever since. So that that EC always holds a very special place for me. Yes, love that. My goodness. Okay, last question. Is there an item that might be a particular keepsake or has a sentimental attachment for you? One item in particular that, you know, you're the house is on fire. This is one of the kind of things you grab. Yeah, I mean, uh, there would be several different things. I There's this one item that I uh, have in my coat pocket that's always there. It's uh, my daughter's glove, her knit glove, when she was a little girl. And it's just this tiny little red glove, and it's in my coat pocket. <laughs> and I will put my hand in there sometimes, and I will feel it's in there still. I'll take it out, and I just love, you know, remembering her as a little girl. So <laughs> that's one thing I, I hopefully I would be able to, it's in my coat that's probably in the back closet. Hopefully I could get to it if there was a fire and, and take it with me. So, <laughs> yeah, I'd say that. That about made me cry. I have one-year-old twin girls right now, and it's, um, <laughs> they grow so fast. And it's, especially the the glove, how cool to like remember when her hand was so small, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my daughter's 22 now. She just graduated from college this this past year, so. (laughs) Does she know that you have that glove? Does she know that story? I may have mentioned it to her before. Yeah. That's wonderful. I think that's really sweet. No, thanks. That's a great way to end on some sweet, happy dad tears. Oh, I know. I know so much. <laughs> Thank you. The Ensemble Theater Chattanooga and the Lights Up podcast were one of 11 organizations across the Chattanooga Valley to receive grant funding through the Sustaining the Humanities Through the American Rescue Plan. As part of this podcast, for each episode, we would like to highlight one of the other organizations receiving a sharp grant. Founded in 1952, SoLit has become an essential literary arts hub for Chattanooga. Begun by a grant from the Ford Foundation, the organization has evolved over the years from various art programs to a focus on literature and writing. Recently known as Southern Lit Alliance, the organization delivers literary arts experiences that engage young people and adults in a lifelong love of reading, writing, and community conversation. So Lit shares stories that matter. We serve over 6,000 adults and children each year through literature festivals, author visits, writing workshops, writing contests for children, and outreach to area jails and underserved communities. In the last decade, research has found a change in how our brains comprehend information after the advent of the internet, making concentration and critical thinking more difficult as we constantly scan information. Fortunately, the benefits of reading literature and writing are far-reaching and include improved critical thinking skills, empathy for others, vocabulary, writing ability, imagination, and cultural literacy. Literature is vital to our community and has the incomparable power to inspire, connect, and uplift. As the internet and social media have garnered a large part of our time, it is more important than ever to reach the next generation with the power of the literary arts. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. 
The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or a reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast.